Good day and welcome to Cyber Weekly. I am your host, Chase Fopiano. Thanks for joining us today. We are brought to you by CyberTech Analytics. Cyber Weekly exists to speak about where cybercrime and cybersecurity intersect. We cover trending cybersecurity news, cyber attacks, ongoing and future trends, and how to protect your organization optimally. We also expand on cybersecurity leadership and education to ensure we are at the forefront of cybersecurity knowledge. Hey everyone, welcome. This week we have a great podcast and a great speaker. Uh, we sit down with Tony Urbanovich. He is the Chief Technology Officer of Cyber Florida. Uh, they are based over on the west coast of Florida and they also have a great podcast called the No Password Required Podcast. Uh, they input a good amount of personality and have some great guest speakers on as well. Today we are speaking about zero trust architecture, zero trust access. Tony has a great deal of experience and wisdom when it comes to this topic. And we just went through a bunch of different questions, uh, more so on the beginner level or just the overall business protection level and how zero trust access could protect and help your business in the future. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Cyber Weekly. Today is August 16th, 2021, and we are joined by uh, Florida Center for Cybersecurity CTO, Tony Urbanovich. Tony, welcome to the show. How are you today? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for the invite. Oh, anytime. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about some uh, different aspects of cybersecurity, and the biggest topic we'll be covering is zero trust architecture or zero trust access. Um, we have some questions we've lined up for Tony. He is a leading expert uh, over on the West Coast of Florida, and we think he'll be great for answering some questions on this topic and helping people and businesses out all over. Um, Tony, let's just start with uh, your current position, and if you could tell us a little more about uh, Cyber Florida and what you guys do over there. Certainly. So as you mentioned, I'm the Chief Technology Officer here at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity. We're commonly referred to ourselves as uh, Cyber Florida or known as Cyber Florida. Um, in my current role, I'm responsible for the center's technology platforms that support the 12 state university systems. Uh, throughout Florida. And that also includes managing our student-run security operations center where we teach students how to be a tier one entry level SOC analyst, uh, hopefully as they graduate and get a well-paying job in cybersecurity, as well as various other activities that support the, uh, the center's mission. Um, the center itself was actually uh, created by Flor the Florida legislature in 2014 with a focus on helping Florida become a national leader in cybersecurity education, academic and practical research, and community outreach and engagement. Um, so we're funded by the state, but housed at the University of South Florida. And as I mentioned earlier, we work with all 12 uh, state university system institutions uh, throughout Florida, as well as dedicated partners from private nonprofit sectors, local state governments, small businesses, uh, US military, et cetera, to achieve our mission. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen a lot of good stuff about uh, what's going on over at USF and Cyber Florida. And I know you guys have a uh, big podcast as well. Have you? I'm sure you've been able to speak on that a bunch as well. 
I have not yet, although I've teed up some of my former colleagues to, uh, to be interviewed on the podcast. Nice. Uh, so, uh, you know, Rex and the team really does a great job, uh, great job with that podcast. Um, yeah. and, and they've made some great strides growing it over the last year or so. No, they, they definitely put a lot of good personality into it and have some good, great speakers on. Um, next thing I'll go into is I like to just come up with everyone's past and how they actually got into the cybersecurity uh, field. Sure. Um, so, you know, what, first of all, you know, since it's just a uh, voice, people don't know, can't see my gray hair, but, uh, you know, this wasn't a planned career field at the time that, uh, that I was starting to get into cybersecurity. It, it didn't, the term cybersecurity didn't really even exist. So I started my career in the air force, uh, flying strategic, uh, airborne reconnaissance missions in support of, uh, organizations like the, the National Security Agency. And shortly after I left active duty, uh, I was fortunate enough to work at the Pentagon on a series of studies in their, or supporting their command control and computer uh, directorate. Um, so it enabled me to kind of leverage some of what I had been taught in the military and bring that to, uh, bring that to the Pentagon and support the Pentagon. Uh, but as I mentioned, there was no cybersecurity at the time. The term was information assurance was kind of the key buzzword at the time. So everybody was focused on information assurance. So over the years, that morphed into cybersecurity. And I took on kind of growing responsibilities in several executive roles. As I mentioned, building on those foundations of the military that I also leveraged at the Pentagon. Uh, but, you know, focusing on areas such as, you know, uh, network security, data protection, incident response, privacy, uh, and some other critical areas. And through there, I've you know been fortunate enough to have executive roles in several organizations. Uh, VP at ChoicePoint that was bought out by LexisNexis eventually. Um, I went there following a major data breach. Uh, Vice President of American Express running some of their cybersecurity um, infrastructure, major infrastructure that they had around data protection, networks, VPNs, things of that nature. Uh, I've been the chief operating officer at a cybersecurity startup focused on a SaaS-based platform for third-party risk. And I've also been the CEO of my own cybersecurity consulting firm for a few years, where I've worked with small clients, um, small startups, venture capital uh, firms, to multi-billion dollar firms, where I actually was fortunate enough to, uh, to lead a team on behalf of that client, building a national cybersecurity strategy and national incident response plan for a government in the Middle East. Oh, that's awesome stuff. Sounds like you have a lot of good uh, different aspects of experience and you, you've definitely seen the field evolve to what it is today. I think, like you said, uh, back then it wasn't cybersecurity is more of a new term. I think it went from what you said, assurance to maybe information security. And now it's kind of information security is merging with cybersecurity, even though they are somewhat different. Um, and I, I think what you said too, is you came in through the Air, Air Force, you said? That is correct. Yeah. So I, I've seen a lot of veterans entering this field, which is, I, I think is a great thing because there's a lot of good cybersecurity fields you could go into through the different branches. I know Army has a cyber ops. And if you could get that experience through the government and working on those huge enterprise systems, and especially in the branches, I think that's a lot of a great resume booster for a lot of people coming out of the service nowadays. Absolutely. What do you think over those years, and I, I, I know we talked about the different changing terms, what have you seen or what do you think the biggest changes from even, let's say, five years ago to today? Do you think it's just organizations are finally taking this a little more serious 
or what's your take on it? Because I think for the last five years, people were in the mindset of, oh, it doesn't impact us. So uh, we're not, we're not going to be a target and purchasing these cybersecurity systems aren't as critical for us as it is a big bank. What, what's your view on this? So, so let me, you know, let me uh, not to talk about how old I am, but let me, let me start by, you know, talking about kind of when I started and keep in mind when I started, it was the mid eighties when personal computers were still big, bulky and expensive. So back then, if you were lucky to have one, you know, um, you know, you had a dial up connection to the internet, you know, it was slow 2400 baud. So think about it, you know, you know, most people are going to have to look that up, listen to podcasts, but you know, that was basically one megabit per hour. So think about how slow that that connection was. I mean, that's that's what it was like back then from a computer perspective. Now I hold a computer in the palm of my hand with, you know, probably a 500 megabit per second speed, you know, at home and, and have broadband access as I travel globally supporting clients and things of that nature. You know, back then, if I needed to do research, I went to these brick and mortar organizations like companies like Borders, Barnes and Noble, or as we got into the 90s, it was this weird startup company that was like selling books, you know, this company called Amazon, right? (laughs) They'll never make it, you know, uh, you know, but that's how you did your research, right? Now I've got this smartphone in my hand and I could just, you know, research just about everything at my fingertips, uh, and have access to that. I could have food delivered to my doorstep, right? You know, I can communicate with colleagues around the world over social media um, and things of that nature. And your network back then, you knew where your network and data was located. I could physically walk down the hallway in an organization I worked for and look at the racks of servers and look at all the wires through the, the ceiling and everything that connected everything. And by the way, there's a wire came out in my office and I plugged in if I wanted to connect to all that. You know, now, you know, a lot of organizations have very few on-site servers, maybe for the basic functionality they need, but most of the applications are in the cloud. So try explaining the concept of the cloud to, you know, my mother is in her 80s and lives in an independent living facility, sit around and talk to 80 and 90 year olds about what the cloud is, right? They're looking up in the sky. I'm like, no, 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 with the computer stuff, it's in the cloud. You know, so it makes for some fun conversations, as you can imagine. But I I thought just some of that background then and now from when I started, how things have drastically changed. So other than, you know, again, reinforcing the fact that I'm an old gray haired dude, kind of what is back to your core question? What does this all mean for cybersecurity? Right. So the traditional network perimeter, you know, I've got a I've got a, a network in my company, put firewalls and perimeters around that and protect that. That's basically disappeared. You know, it, it pretty much doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, it, it's just rare that you have that type of network infrastructure other than in some government infrastructures. And even then, they use the cloud also with some of their secure infrastructure. So, I mean, this requires you to not only understand how to protect your extended network, but also keep in mind that you're working with all these third-party vendors and they now become part of your extended network and your data and your application access and everything extends to them, your HR systems, CRM systems, finance, email, data storage, et cetera. So you need to understand the cybersecurity controls, not only that you have within your own network, but what are the safeguards that all these other third-party vendors or partners that you're working with have in place? Because that's part of your extended ecosystem now. So like I said, that traditional perimeter where I could just protect what I can see has totally disappeared over the the years. Um, What also has occurred is that the attack surface just become large, 
you know, large and is ever expanding. So think about, you know, IoT, bring your own device to work, right? Um, with COVID, you know, all the remote workers, everyone went from on site. So companies were protecting their network on site and everybody's remote. And if they didn't have a big remote presence, why? Well, you know, they had to suddenly figure it out right away, how to deal with that remote presence and, and how to also protect things from a cyber perspective. And I think that's why over the, the last year, we've seen a lot of companies getting more interested in architectures like Zero Trust, as we're, you know, kind of talking about today. But it's, you know, required you to, to really rethink how you think about your traditional network and attack surface. Awesome. Yeah, I agree with you're seeing a lot of these recent attacks are focused on vendors and the third party uh, supply chain management because you could, you could protect your company uh, the best way possible. But if the vendors you use that have some kind of logical access to uh, your network don't have that same uh, priority, then you're going to suffer if, if they're compromised in any uh, sort of way. Same thing with, I think the next question I was going to ask is where the field is going. Um, you've seen that in the last year, all the businesses pushing workers to remote and, and that opens up a, a key security risk of having people offsite. And like you said, the, the network isn't as defined as it used to be. So that's, I think that's a, a great uh, segue into zero trust architecture with a lot of these people uh, working from home on laptops that are connecting back to wherever they're hosting their uh, network equipment and their servers. A lot of it, like you said, up in the cloud nowadays. Um, what do you think it, in your mindset, we'll move over to zero trust access now. Can you explain the difference between, let's say those, that old school network of, okay, I have all my devices on here. Uh, I know everyone connecting to every single uh, device and every part of our network. Um, where, are, where does zero trust differentiate between that normal network setup? So, you know, if we talk about a normal network setup, you know, that, that setup basically assumes that everyone outside my perimeter is untrusted and everyone who I've allowed inside my perimeter is now trusted, you know, so meaning that once you authenticate and authorize a user or device to be on your network, you know, I could just assume trust, but that concept, especially with what we've seen with some of the malicious threat actors and insider threats, et cetera, that, that concept is really outdated because you can no longer allow these insiders and malicious actors to freely move throughout your network and have the ability to access your various applications and data on your network. On the flip side of that, the zero trust basically takes the, the mentality of no one's trusted on my network and I'm gonna assume that I'm breached at all times. And therefore I've got to put in some other controls to basically continuously uh, I focus on identity, content aware access, as well as creating kind of a virtual perimeter around every specific user that comes in, applica user application device interaction, if you will, uh, and the behavior around those. So, I mean, that's really the difference between the two, you know, uh, as I think it up at a macro level. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a key because on most like, uh, let's say devices, I, I log in, I use my credentials and I have access to everything that I have access permission wise on my network. And I think zero trust definitely uh, helps organizations kind of restrict that a little more so and help, like we've seen in some of these attacks that the threat actors been on the network for three, three weeks to a month and they're just kind of moving lateral 
And with the regular network setup, that might not be something they catch right away, but maybe with zero trust uh, access, they would have to re-authenticate to every single thing they're trying to do. With zero trust, is this still, uh, we've read some things on here about, uh, is a typical VPN still something used or does the zero trust access, is that replacing the traditional VPN? So some organizations have looked at zero trust to replace, like you mentioned, a traditional VPN. Um, but as you go to implement zero trust, you're likely still require a VPN, at least for some legacy applications. Um, think about, you know, what I talked about earlier, you know, the emergence of things over time, right? There are a lot of organizations that are large and, you know, they could have, you know, mainframe computers, things that require RDP access, uh, external third-party vendors, et cetera. So, over time, as zero trust is implemented, you may be able to phase out some of that legacy VPN uh, access as you, you know, introduce some of these zero trust concepts about you know, identity and device aware access. Um, but you, know, you may in fact maintain some VPN access for either sensitive applications or contractor or third party access to your data and applications. Again, just as another mechanism for uh, potential threat actor to have to go through and, and prove the trust, if you will, to get into the network. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point because I think a lot of organizations are afraid uh, based on the legacy applications and platforms they have, oh, this, this might not be something we can move to, but it is pretty, uh, I think, flexible on being able to run some of those things still over the traditional VPN, but then your more uh, new school applications be able to run them over the more uh, dedicated zero trust access how do, you, how do you think, I know we talked about this, the, the prior questions, uh, do you think moving forward, this better protects your network and organization overall? I do. I think it, it, there are a couple of things that it allows for you to do within there. And these aren't in any priority order, obviously, but you know, number one, you can lessen the vulnerabilities to your network or on your network. So once in place, it allows you to better secure uh, your company, especially from the kind of already inside your network, lateral movement, lateral threats that you could have with a different security model. Um, I think it allows you to put in place stronger policies for identifying users and access for those users. So if you've got strong identity access management for users inside the network, you can make uh, you know better decision from a policy perspective on what you allow those users to have access to versus as we talked about earlier that once I'm in, it's wide open to everything, right? You know, so the policies could say, okay, you know, not just this particular user, but their device and does the device have the policies on it and latest updates on it? You know, what's the geofencing of that device? Are they coming in from overseas somewhere, an IP that they shouldn't be coming in from? Are they coming in at a certain time of the evening when we just don't see this user coming in then? So again, you could write policies around there to, to kind of allow that access, uh, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't really talked about was part of zero trust is, you know, also includes the concept of micro segmentation. So, you know, putting, you know, different segments or perimeters or, or zones around parts of your network where you segment out different data or applications that are more sensitive than others, you know, so that that allows you to also from a, you know, what it does to protect your network. If someone gets inside, again, it can stop that lateral movement because, okay, they, maybe they, you know, penetrated this one segment, but they're only gaining access to that. They're not moving laterally throughout my network. Um, and then, you know, another concept of zero trust is encryption of 
you know, that data transferring inside your network and around your network, et cetera. So you get some increased data protection uh, with some of that data and storage data and transit encryption that you have going on there. Yeah, I think with a lot of these recent attacks, people are learning the, the power of encrypting your data because let's say they do get in and you're, you have that zero trust architecture. It helps them a lot being able to uh, lock, kind of lock that down. So I was able to get into your network, but you can't go any further than that. We blocked off basically you advancing to the next application or to uh, any kind of files. So I think that's a, a great benefit to organizations and the encryption, even let's say they get into that initial uh, data set, if that information is encrypted, they could demand whatever they want. If I have the proper backups and everything I need, hey, you, you could have that data, we'll recover and we're not gonna pay your uh, $2 million ransom. You could just take that information, you'll never have the keys and good luck. Because I know some of the some of the more uh, timeframes I've seen on unencrypting uh, 256-bit encryption AES would take them a very long time, even with uh, some of the new quantum computers. So I would wish them the best of luck and just restore my network and make sure they're off of it. Right. Uh, so I know we talked about a lot, this covers a lot of the pros. Do you see any cons? Is this a little more difficult to implement or is does it take more people to manage this or what, what kind of cons do you possibly think could arise? Sure. So, you know, I think you mentioned we talked about some of the, the pros, um, you know, but from a cons perspective, look like any change in your organization, it takes time and effort to set up. Right. So I mentioned earlier about the policies that you're going to have to understand. I mean, before you start implementing those policies, you've got to have a, a solid understanding of the users on your network, the devices on your network, um, the data flows on your network, what data is critical to protect what data you can protect to a lesser extent. So in order for you to set up those, those policies and start to implement it, you've actually got to you know, think through those things as you start building this you know, zero trust network and then start migrating things over there with a crawl, walk, run approach versus and you know, set it up for everything all at once and just hope it works, right? Um, and you may discover things in there that you say, like we talked about legacy applications, these aren't a candidate for zero trust. So what can I do to protect those things? So it's that, that thinking through it, you know, if you plan it right, it'll go well. If you don't plan it right, jump into it, it may not go well. Um, you know, the other uh, element that some view as a con, I think is, you know, the increased management responsibility of these various users that zero trust, you know, can require. So now think about it, you've got to have a single source of identity in your organization. And hopefully that's not your AD environment. You know, you're using your HR systems or some other system, you know, for your employees and contractors, et cetera. But you're gonna to have to, you know, manage those employees again, you know, not just beyond your, or not just your employees, but beyond that, your contractors, your vendors and others. So you may have to, you know, also get into some of your vendor systems, what vendors have access to your network and when contracts end and should that vendor be off your network are no longer allowed access because the contract ended. Um, and then, you know, likewise, I'd say, you know, your applications are varied. So you've got to have a better understanding of different applications and the relationship between the user, the application and the data, and when they need access to that uh, application, including your third parties need for access to those applications. You know, now that a lot of us are, you know, still just coming back from remote work during COVID. Yeah, and I think he brought up a good point um, policy foundation 
and basically classifying of your data and user permissions. Um, a lot of that, I'm sure you'd want to go off least privilege, just like most other setups. But I think with any IT project, if you put that initial work in and making sure that it's set up properly from the beginning, that could save you a lot of the headaches down the road with managing it and having to basically do a 180 and start over because you didn't set it up properly. Sure. The, the one other thing that I will throw in there too is that um, similar to when I manage VPNs at a large financial institution, you've, you've got to have kind of multiple uh, geographically dispersed points for your VPN. So users can come into a point that's closest to them. And many organizations don't necessarily think of that from a you know, zero trust architecture perspective. You know, if they have employees that are traveling or in different areas, you know, if it's not set up with some redundancy, especially through cloud, you know, uh, uh, through cloud applications for that to get to that trust broker, et cetera, you know, that could be a single point of failure. So you've got to think about that from a latency of the user and single point of failure perspective also, again, you know, just from a redundancy. Yeah, I think that comes down to, again, making sure you, you put all this out and plan it properly, make sure you, you know your organization, how you need to set up the network, if you have people traveling remote overseas, because you want to make sure that when they go on that trip and they try to reconnect your uh, network, they're not blocked out when they're in, uh, let's say, like Belgium or somewhere right. in Europe, because then that wouldn't go too well if they're giving some sort of presentation and can't get in. <laughs> sure. The, the other thing to think about, if you're in a regulated environment, you know, what regulators and what, you know, compliance standards are your regulators requiring, right? So as you're thinking about putting this in place, what does that do to your compliance and audit for things that you have to be compliant with, say from a banking or HIPAA, you know, perspective, if you're a healthcare organization, et cetera. So you've got to understand those existing regulations and how to zero trust, how do you have open that conversation with your regulator or auditor to say, okay, we're going to do this and make sure you don't just, now you failed a compliance piece, which is part of your maintaining business operations. Yeah, I think you definitely have to cover uh, a lot of those different aspects, especially I know with CGIS compliance, what I, I deal particularly with, uh, we haven't seen a big shift over to Zero Trust because I think they're still trying to work out how to incorporate some of their compliance standards to meet both Zero Trust and typical old uh, network setups. So I, that's definitely a challenge, making sure that it meets all your compliance regulations and getting to that point. But I think if you work with organizations that come in and audit, I, I think they've seen a big shift into zero trust architecture. So I think overall, uh, people are getting more in tune of how to meet those requirements while running zero trust. And I'll say from having to deal with, you know, some of our regulators or regulators have dealt with them past before, if you if you have a good enough relationship and have that discussion ahead of time, it goes so much easier versus you just do it. And then the regulator comes in and you hope they hope they did, you know, it's not a strategy when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. When I, when I do our compliance management stuff, I, I am the first person to call our, we usually are assigned an auditor and I have a decent relationship with them. So I usually, if there's something I don't know that I have a question about and it has to do with that specific set of compliance regulations, I'll call them. Like, mm -hmm. hey, uh, John, we're thinking about doing this. Is this something you've seen before? Have you ever seen any other agency conduct this or run this over their network? And there, a lot of people, I think, are afraid of auditors, but those are some of my greatest sources of information and just pre-checking and getting them in the loop 
because they're going to be the one coming on site later on and finding this. Right. But sometimes if you loop them in the beginning or just to seek out their knowledge, it usually will help you get set up a little better or at least set up compliance uh, related and being in that compliance standard. Sure. And a lot of times they're not going to say that, that because they've got to wear their independent auditor hat, they're not going to tell you what the answer is. Yeah. And you have to be ready for that. But at least, you know, okay, if we do this, do you think this would still meet the standard or am I going down a wrong path, you know? Yeah. Or uh, if you could, they need to check with someone that might have the authority to give you the, the real legitimate right. compliance regulation answer. Certainly. Awesome. Um, is this something I, I know with a lot of uh, systems we set up, uh, two-factor authentication is a, a big thing right now, making sure you have that running over your network, especially for, uh, I know, over VPNs and having those remote workers come in over two-factor. Is this still something you can do with uh, zero trust? Uh, absolutely. In particular, I think you just pointed to the to one of the key use cases for multi-factor authentication with use uh, with uh, zero trust, right? Um, you know, if you think about the architecture and the way you set it up, you've got trusted devices that you know of on your network, and depending on what zero uh, trust vendor and you know what solution you go with, you know some of those known devices you may have to you know have a, a particular endpoint agent installed on them, right? There, there are other approaches where you don't have to have an endpoint agent installed. But in this particular case, those contractors are coming in with likely untrusted devices, right? So that multi-factor authentication gives you at least uh, you know, another, another mechanism, if you will, to confirm the trust of that particular individual or identity coming in. Oh, yeah, I, think, I think that's a, the big thing because locking people down to least privilege and kind of mitigating the risk of uh, maybe a device getting stolen and someone getting extreme access to the network. Uh, that, that's definitely a, a big factor getting uh, for threat actors nowadays and being able to advance the attack. So that could definitely help limit that. And it's not even getting stolen. It's getting lost. I won't mention the name of the company, but you know, I'll just say that uh, I had a, uh, a security vendor setting up a system at a you know, house that I used to live in. And sure enough, you know, as I stepped out of my house and looked at the road, he had left his device on the truck and drove off and it was laying there on the ground, you know, and I was able to call him and he came back and he was very thankful because he'd been looking for it for an hour, you know, but things of that nature happen. So it's not just stolen, it's misplaced, lost. And then who knows whose hand it, uh, the device falls into. Yeah, luckily in that case, it was a nice individual who called him back, <laughs> but a lot of times you don't get that person finding the device and they, sure. sell, it. they sell it to maybe someone who would want a uh, free range, uh, device that's found maybe belonging to a big security company or vendor. Right. Um, how do you think, so with, with this type of network architecture set up and limiting the, the applications and the reach that they have into the network, do you think this is something when people move to, or if they move to, it can be an extreme difference in helping mitigate cyber attacks and maybe stopping the extreme attacks you see now to where they get in full access to the network, take files that are unencrypted, hold them ransom? Well, you know, look, organizations are and will constantly be under attack. So if we talk about mitigating attacks, you're still going to get attacked, right? But I think to your point, it can, you know, a zero trust architecture can reduce the likelihood 
of having a successful attack. And in cases where a threat actor does get in, and we talk about some of the concepts here of microsegmentation and encryption of the data, et cetera, what, if you do have a successful attack, I think it could significantly decrease the effects of that attack by limiting their ability to move laterally, exfiltrate data. If they do exfiltrate data, hopefully it's encrypted and you know things of that nature. So again, it minimizes the damage that can be done to your network, both from a, an actual damage perspective as well as from a reputational damage perspective. And I think, um, like we've said with application-based permission, network permissions helps limit that. I love when people, I, I see posts all the time about like, we need to end ransomware, we need to end uh, cyber threat actors. This, this field will only continue to grow. Criminals are now seeing that, hey, instead of going out into the streets, I could, I could learn some basic coding skills. I could learn this information very easily online. And I could basically uh, purchase ransomware as a service now. Uh, that's becoming a thing. And why would I go out and take the risk when I could do this all behind a computer? And they keep on seeing these successful attacks out there. And this only continues to motivate and grow the field. And like you said, I think it's not, if you think you'll stop this industry, you'll stop cybercrime. I think there's a little, I don't know, ignorance, I don't know what the word is, but I, I don't personally think in my opinion, it's ever something you'll stop. I think it's like you said, it's something to, you wanna help mitigate or lessen the burden and impact it has on your organization. So doing something like zero trust that, that might limit them to accessing just some encrypted data and that's where it gets cut off and you're able to catch it at that point. I think that's where this comes into play and in helping uh, limit the attacks you see getting to the point of complete network takeover, uh, basically access to personal uh, identifiable information that the company has, or tr maybe trade secrets that they have on information on their products. So I think this is the route this product will help with. And compared to a lot of things out there, that I think this could overall help mitigate those factors the most on what's currently out there and available. Well, and if you if you think about it, you know, you mentioned ransomware, right? By the time you detect ransomware on your network, many times for a lot of organizations, it's too late, right? You know, it it already happened. You know, with implementing a zero trust network, you talked about mitigation, right? That puts you, if you think of the NIST framework, identify, prepare, um, well, or I use prepare instead of identify, but prepare, prevent, detect, respond, recover, right? You know, by the time you detect and respond. You're, you're fighting a firefight, right? You know, this allows you to move closer left to that boom moment, if you will, of something bad happening and hopefully prepare and prevent it and mitigate some of that up front. Yeah, it still may happen, right? But, but you're not in this crisis mode of this large event hitting your network. And, and hopefully, you know, if you implement this uh, appropriately and train the appropriate people, you can minimize, uh, you know, some of those things to, again, to prepare and prevent it up front. Yeah, I think that is, it's, it's minimizing that impact or that time because a lot of people in the public don't necessarily see the, the downtime be, be, uh, behind some of these ransomware events. But some of these companies have to shut down their network for days or weeks. And the financial, a lot of people think the, the ransomware payment is the biggest cost, cost factor for these attacks, but it's really just the recovery costs. Uh, if there's any regulatory fines behind it, uh, shutting down business for that amount of time. So it's really the, the back end costs that are impacting these companies. I can't imagine 
with the pipeline attack, uh, how long their systems were shut down for and how much uh, revenue that's sort of cost them over the course of the year looking back. So certainly. And, and then just think about it from a reputational risk perspective, right? You know, you're a publicly traded company. Um, you know, you may be in, in a large publicly traded company, you know, you've got your media professionals, your lawyers, et cetera, you know, and over time you pro can probably recover from that and continue in business. If you're a small or medium business, this could shutter your, your whole business, you know, from a reputational hit perspective. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's tough out there. And if people think that they can absolutely stop cyber attacks, uh, you know, I'd say they're, you know, being a little naive, right? But you can prepare for them and you can prepare for when it happens, what you'll do and how quickly you can, you know, mitigate those factors up front. And if it happens, how quickly you can recover from some of those things. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of these incidents in the news are, I, I feel bad for the companies and organizations going through them. But I, I think it is finally opening up the mindset of even smaller and mid-sized companies seeing that, hey, listen, anyone could be targeted. If you're hosting any kind of data or credit card information, personal information, you could be a, a, a target, especially for some of these smaller threat actors out there that aren't like nation states. They, they're just after the end money or holding a company ransom. And like you said, if you're a small organization and these uh, people come in and demand a million dollars, that could be your entire revenue for the year and put your company under. So I think taking those little measures of, it, it's even, I know not everyone out there can afford a, the full suite of cybersecurity uh, systems and software, but do what you can. Like whether it's, uh, we find antivirus, a SIM, cybersecurity awareness training, put your people in a position to succeed and just do what you can. We understand not, if you can't afford it, okay, that's one thing, but there's something you can't afford or there is an affordable option out there for your company. It's just finding that. And I think, and my next question would have been, do you think there's a perfect network setup? And I think with just a lot of the, things changing, products changes, just patching. Do you, is that even, do you think that's even a term to, for a company to shoot for the perfect network setup? Well, you know, perf perfect doesn't exist, right? And, and perfect differs based upon your specific business model or your, I'll say you're striving for perfect and what perfect means to your business versus my business differs based on the industry we're in, the data we're trying to protect. Um, so, you know, give you an example, right? You know, you may be in a business that is heavily dependent upon, um, you know, e-commerce, internet sales, et cetera. Well, you're going to defend your website a lot differently because it's critical to your business than I'll defend mine. That's just a marketing website. And by the way, if it goes down, no love lost because I interact differently with my customers, right? So that, that perfect and how you set up your, your defenses and what you focus on is going to differ based upon your business model. So when I think of a perfect approach, I always you know, try to tell organizations to take a risk-based approach to protecting their assets and their data based on the uniqueness of their, of their business model and focus on implementing zero trust based on that risk-based approach for how they apply the identity access management, the privileged access you know, the cloud broker, et cetera, that's going to differ per organization. We talked about all those policies you set up, right? Those policies are going to differ for organization A, B, and C based upon their business model and what 
they hold as most precious to them from a data or an application perspective. Yeah, and I agree with that too. Every industry has different needs and security factors they have to go by. Um, it's just getting to the point of best protecting your organization in your mind. Because um, it goes back to the fact of perfect doesn't exist because you could set it up perfect and you could still get breached or still be a target and suffer some kind of security event. So I don't like to get people in the mindset of like, oh, this is the, like when we set things up for our, our clients, it's not, oh, this is the perfect network setup. No, that's just, that's not realistic. And that's giving false claims because I don't think anyone can set up the perfect network because equipment that is 100% functional tomorrow may have some kind of zero day attack and be vulnerable that next day. So that's not something we ever want to try to sell or put people in the mindset. It's just you, as long as you, I find if you constantly improve and keep out on, uh, keep on the lookout for different alerts, different patches, make sure you patch accordingly, make sure you review your current systems in place, what else is out there, keep your options open. Just because I've seen a lot of vendors, they may be great today, but they get sold out and to a different company and that company doesn't prioritize the same things the old company did. Sure. Um, my la uh, one of my last questions, from initial setup, and we do this a lot too, but what do you feel is the most critical part of setting up your network security? Do you think it's the equipment side of it, like endpoint protection or endpoint protection, SIMs, zero trust, or do you think it's more of a combination of those things with maybe something like security awareness training? Well, I'm going to say, you know, answer in a different path and say something different or none of the above. I think it comes down to basic hygiene, right? As you pointed out, perfect, right? I can potentially, let's say perfect existed. I could create perfect in this moment, second in time, but 10 seconds from now, it's no longer perfect because there's another vulnerability out there. Or there's a threat actor that found a way to get around something you know, that nobody knows of from a zero day. So I think if I think about setting up my network, I would say it's the basic hygiene of vulnerability management, patch management, configuration management. If you look at a lot of these breaches that have occurred historically, recently, you know, recently and historically, you know, a lot of these occurred not because of some Hollywood movie actor, hacker, spy scenario that, you know, you could come up with. It's basic hygiene failed, right? And, and if you do the basic blocking and tackling, I think you can, this is my personal number, not a study or anything, right? But I think you can take probably 75% of the risk off the table by focusing on those things. There's still other risk. There's other things you have to focus on. Like you mentioned, zero trust, endpoint security, your firewalls, whatever they may be. But good hygiene allows you to take a lot of that risk off the table. And I don't think enough organizations focus enough time and effort on those simple things because it's not sexy. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a great point. Um, it's the same. Sometimes I, I talk to clients about just the overall culture of the organization and companies that have 500,000 employees and they mention cybersecurity once a year during a 15 minute online presentation that people click through as quickly as they can. That's not necessarily establishing that culture of awareness that you want, because a lot of this, it comes down to maybe one person's mistake, maybe, especially now all the phishing emails out there, 
and business email compromise. It's, it's getting one person to fall for that. So if you, I find if the basics and making sure your people are aware of what's out there and giving them relevant training continuously, uh, I think that makes a big difference too. Maybe that other 25% of it, because you just can't expect people to do their job, learn everything about their job. And then if you don't tell them anything about what's going on in the cybersecurity realm to keep up with that as well. So you can't, people need to be aware of this and constantly, Hey, send out, I get alerts all day about cybersecurity threats and what's going on out there. Send those to your employees, let them be aware of what's going on as well. What ransomware payments are being made or what organizations are being targeted or how they're being targeted, what kind of emails they're seeing. I've seen a lot of, uh, we sent one out the other day. uh, It was basically COVID related and people were like, Oh, that's not fair. And it's like, Oh, it's not fair. But do you think that cyber criminals aren't out there using the same tactic to try to get in? They absolutely are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I'll I'll say with that is, you know, you you hit on a good point. Um, You know, it's absolutely created an organizational awareness you know, if you've got a team of, if you're depending on the size of your business, you know, I, I think about when I was in a large organization, you know, I was one segment of the cybersecurity organization. I had over, you know, hundred staff working for me, right? A lot of organizations aren't that fortunate. You know, they may only have 10 staff or so, but if you can make everyone in your organization cyber aware, not cyber professionals, but cyber aware, you know, you, you've got, you know, maybe another couple hundred eyes and ears in your organization that are at least thinking about it and helping you not do, I'll say stupid things or click on something, you know, thinking before you click on something. But how do we create that before somebody gets in the business environment? And I'll bring it back to one of the missions of Cyber Florida, right? One of the things that we have been working on recently is uh, something we call cyber citizenship. We've been working with uh, organizations like the Florida Center for Instructional Technology that's also based out of USF, New America, um, you know, an organization called ISKME. And the concept is that if I can teach in the K through 12 realm um, better cyber citizenship and make, you know, these students as they're coming through the elementary schools and the high school cyber aware and, you know, help them understand almost like you have civics in high school and, and in school, but have it be cyber um, and, you know, start to at least present some of these concepts to them at an early age you know, would they be better protected on social media? And as they start reading the news and being able to differentiate between, you know, okay, this is a bogus phishing, you know, link that I'm getting on my phone, et cetera, and not clicking on things. So I think we have to, you know, the reason why I think we're working with organizations to focus on this is to try to push some of that knowledge downstream, if you will, before, you know, students get into college and before they get into the workforce. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's the same point of some countries, I think over in Europe, kind of turn their uh, even elementary school students towards like coding classes, mm-hmm. just to get that basis foundation. And I, I think if they do that here as well, and even coding kind of opens the realm into the cybercrime arena, but it's basically that foundation of cyber awareness. And I, I think that's critical moving forward because this isn't something we'll ever see go away. Unless we shut the internet down, uh, but I don't think that's an option anymore. Um, what uh, I think Cyber Florida is definitely doing some great things. What's uh, how can viewers find out more about Cyber Florida and what you guys are doing over there on the west coast of Florida? 
Sure. So our, our website is uh, cyberflorida.org. Uh, and uh, they can go to our website and, you know, we have uh, various information on the different programs that we support, uh, whether it be, you know, educational programs, like I said, outreach programs, or, uh, you know, uh, research uh, across the, you know, 12 state university systems. That's awesome. And I know uh, USF is over there as well, and they have a great cybersecurity program, like a bachelor's and a master's program. Uh, and they have a lot of great government reg uh, recognition through Homeland Security and even the NSA, I believe. Certainly. Wow. So, so, you know, that's a good point. Uh, USF, as well as other uh, state university systems throughout Florida, are actually part of the uh, NSA Centers for Academic Excellence program, where NSA actually reviews your curriculum and makes sure it meets a certain cybersecurity standard, if you will. So that includes USF, it includes uh, University of Florida, UWF, Florida International University, University of Central Florida, and there are several others that I know I'm forgetting, and I know someone's going to, uh, you know, hate that I forgot them, but there are many, I think there are, you know, many universities within Florida, state university system that have this uh, academic certification from NSA, as well as throughout our nation. Uh, yeah, that's definitely something to look for when you're going to dedicate years of your life to trying to focus on a field like this. Uh, it's definitely a growing industry, and I, I know there's a lot of jobs out there and a lot of people looking to get into the cybersecurity field. So definitely check out those Florida schools and make sure they are have that approved curriculum to make sure you're getting even better education. Um, well, Tony, we appreciate your time. I hope our uh, viewers learned a lot of good stuff about zero trust architecture, as well as some of the good stuff you guys are doing over there with Cyber Florida. Hopefully they check you, your website out a little more um, and become more part of this growing field. Uh, thank you for your time and we'll talk to you soon. Great, Chase. Thanks for inviting me here today. Anytime. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you learned something new. We always appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you next week.